Ricardo Federico Morin. Editor Billy Bustle Thompson. Ricardo F. Morin Copyright 2018. Ricardo F. Morin, American born in Venezuela, born 1954, title, Platonic Series Number 0023 Medium, Computer Generated Image 2018. Underscore. In Memoriam Eva Lowenberger. Underscore. The Allure of One's Success, Organizes Truth in Haze, To Lead One to Make a Mess. Ricardo F. Morin, April 12, 2021. Underscore. Acknowledgement. Book of Changes is a new departure from my work as a visual artist. I write in collaboration with Billy Bustle Thompson, Professor Emeritus, Hofstra University. Our relationship is not that of author and an editor. As friends, with a history of experiences and very different influences, our relations go beyond mere reacting to the other. I do not see myself as a professional writer, nor do I care to emulate a particular style of writing. Likewise, I have never seen myself as a professional artist. Yet, I have spent my life inquiring into these two disciplines. I am, however, becoming a writer because of Billy. Learning how to render perceptions, as a non-native speaker of English, has been a difficult task. He has been a particular help in bridging the differences in the semantic fields between English and Spanish my mother tongue. Our relations make me as much a work in progress for him as for myself. The process found in Book of Changes came from how to express memory in writing. It was easy to cast aside lack of authenticity, but more difficult was the elimination of excessive detail. Yet, the absence of what was cancelled left its mark on the story. Memories of random, and chance events have been joined. Finding unity was the task at hand. All of it came together in one collage. For me, writing and painting are abstract processes. Although the process of writing is different from painting every word is like a brushstroke or a line, culminating in a regenerative portrait. Book of Changes documents memories through the nuances of short episodes in a life. What is personal and particular is not the objective, rather one seeks the evolution of truth. Ricardo F. Morin, April 12, 2021. Underscore. Chapter 1. Ignis Fatuous, The Whole World Could Collapse, To Live We Need False Hopes. Chapter 2. Your paternal grandfather hardly ever spoke, lying next to him, you suffered his snores. One Sunday morning you sat quietly on the bench with him, he was playing the organ at the church of Bella Vista in Caracas. One Sunday afternoon, he took you to feed pigeons at the Plaza Mayor in Puerto La Guayura. One early Monday, he sat at a carved desk and sipped hot coffee from a demitasse's saucer. For a time, he twiddled his thumbs and whistled a tune. Suddenly he chased you from the house in belief that you had broken something of his. Fearfully you ran across the street and were almost hit by a car. You joined older eight-year-olds playing marbles. Chapter 3. There is so much that we ignore that humility becomes a necessity, not a choice. Nothing can be conclusive at any time. Chapter 4. Your paternal grandmother never engaged in small talk. To dissuade you from sucking your thumb, before bedtime, she applied hot sauce to your left hand. You simply switched to your right thumb. Chapter 5. Man does not control who he is, nor how he thinks, or even how he perceives himself. You do not control who you are, how you think, or how you perceive yourself. Asking why one exists or observing how one changes from time to time, only appears to suggest lack of control. Chapter 6. In his cell, Father Manuel, the math teacher, talked to himself. His murmurs were barely audible. Often he chastised us on the differences between a big man and the little man. The principal father Lisandro replied there's no explanation for evil in the world. Chapter 7. One cannot debunk fears about the existence of God and the devil. It is a wild goose chase.
Culture, similar to tradition and belief, comes from the imagination. Chapter 8. As a friend, Rahelio was considerate and attentive. Your mother heeded not to grow too close to him, he was poor, black. Angrily you countered, poverty was not shameful and, besides, your father's skin was only slightly lighter. Chapter 9. Do you find meaning in imaginative worlds and daydreams? Chapter 10. During lunch, Uncle Calixto sat across at the end of the table. Casually he announced the suicide of a couple he'd introduced you to, only a month before. Your consternation was obvious, Uncle Calixto insisted you were to inquire no further. Years later, with the same tone of anger he accused you of evil thoughts, you have the devil in you, for being gay. Chapter 11. You asked how moral can a person be, someone who believes in the devil, hell, and eternal damnation. For you this morality was defective. For you, religion is no different from astrology. Chapter 12. Fifteen years ago Francis died of cancer. His brother grieved as if a limb had been amputated. He set his home ablaze before drinking antifreeze. The family was not surprised. Neighbors blamed you for not having expunged his pain. The building's manager called the next day alarm that you had exposed 45 stories to conflagration though you did not live together. Chapter 13. Suicide is no different from murder. Killing yourself is no less moral than killing another. Both are cowardly. Consciousness pertains just to the living. Killing oneself is to defile one's nature. Accounting for madness cannot absolve agony. Memory of love is the only consolation. Chapter 14. Just before First Communion, your father brought up death. You replied it was inevitable. Later you heard him telling your mother that your answer was quite unexpected. At Christmas time, you announced to your father you knew all about Santa. He answered what do you plan to do about it? You just shrugged your shoulders and asked for his blessings before going off to bed. Chapter 15. Are you suffering for not being an innocent? Chapter 16. The grocer said he knew your family, so you asked him for a ride home on the back of his pickup. Arriving there you found your father in a state of panic. You had disappeared to him, and you thought he had forgotten you. Thereafter, you did not go to your art classes for ten years. Then, as a teenager, you wandered around your neighborhood. One day, in the early evening you found an older boy studying. He was memorizing something when you interrupted him. He asked why you were offering him candy, and you said, why not? Aren't we neighbors? When you got home late, your parents were leaving to report you missing. Chapter 17 Can anyone measure consciousness? Chapter 18 Each time you came through the gate to your friend's house, his German shepherd would lurch forward until he recognized your voice and scent. Your friend had stayed out of school that day, not feeling well. Without preamble, he volunteered he was being sent off to military school. Then he said he was terribly upset and had to get rid of his stress. You sat quietly at the foot of his bed. The two of you exchanged monosyllables, while he masturbated beneath the blanket. He told you he had to beat and to come. These words were meaningless to you. With a friendly glance you left, never to see him again. Chapter 19 You did not ward off fears, so much as you needed to reckon with their fleeting existence, just like when waking up from a dream. Chapter 20 Vacationing with a classmate your attentions were on his older brother Kiko. Each time your bodies touched you trembled. You feared becoming overwhelmed. Long after his death, his appeal rushes after you. Chapter 21 From early childhood innocence had already been lost to ache. You had long been fair game. Chapter 22 At 18 years you met Enyo Lombana, after having crossed to the neighbor's house. You became his sexual victim. Perhaps this explains going to university 4,000 miles away. Chapter 23. 
You tried never to think of fear, yet it became an obsession. Charter 24. Your father and your art tutor both encouraged education in North America, yet fearing its implications. Their memories stand in silence. Chapter 25. Ignorance is the essential condition of existence. Arrogance obstructs the perceptions of anxiety, the pain of loneliness, fear and lack of love. Rationality cannot be achieved through dogma. Chapter 26. La Nena Perez was a golden rebel for José Luis. Her beauty bewitched all who saw her. For his wife Antonieta, however, she was an interloper. Decades later, a letter of his arrived from Andalusia. In it Antonieta was praised as Tota Una Senora. Self-deprecatingly, he lauded your father. You had mentioned that La Nena did not recognize you at a chance encounter in Caracas. He was beside himself learning your voice was no longer familiar to her. Seemingly, she had forgotten canoeing across the Tukacas Bay. Chapter 27. How can there be love, if one is empty? Ennui uncovers it. Self-importance aspires to enlightenment just as yearning does to sanctity and humility. It is luck to find pure love. Chapter 28. Before entering the university you enrolled in a course in English as a second language. The professor made learning exciting. His patience disarmed you. At mealtime, you spoke on and on, forgetting to eat, and he would smile tenderly. Chapter 29. Desperation cannot assuage sufferance. Chapter 30. Three Marys flew from South America to Niagara Falls for a visit. They rode the Ferris wheel at the amusement park on the shores of Lake Ontario. Their visit was a complete mystery, except they believed they were in contact with extraterrestrials. One of them realized she wasn't the object of Enyo Lombana's affections. Your mother's resulting breakdown was immediate. Chapter 31. In 1977, hungry and destitute, you came close to dying. You distracted yourself in discos. You met Donald Bossack and Paul Barrett, the former insecure and the latter suicidal. You moved into the university dorms to face a group of rioters, who had been egged on by a roommate. Away with the foreigner, they shouted, setting fire to your door. At graduation you found out the university had assigned you a bodyguard. By then you had come to know a student. This Polish dissident, Jurek Pastrak comforted your misery. The summer before graduation you studied together in Austria, and after graduation he went on to continue his studies at the University of Pennsylvania and he went on to Yale for the MFA. Jurek died in the mid-80s in Berlin. Only later did you hear it was AIDS. Chapter 32. Technology has extended our lives into preconceived worlds. Algorithmic archetypes impose an order over bias, by which it controls, sells, and manipulates you. Chapter 33. Every weekend, you and Jurek traveled between New Haven and Philadelphia. Before taking his Fulbright, he suggested it was okay dating another during his absence. You took this to be a lack of loyalty. From Berlin he wrote he had met a film historian. After Jurek's death, Carl visited your art studio. He found your geometrical canvas is oddly formal. Was his conversation an echo of his own influence on Jurek and, of his own vision of the freedom of artistic expression? He later wrote from Berlin he was dying. In his letter he said your quests regarding treatments were futile missionary pretenses. Chapter 34. But it was not a mission, it was compassion for Jurek and for him. Carl was filled with his own memories, you begged him to keep up hope. Chapter 35. Never have you cried for someone as when you did when Benjamin Ivry left to work in Paris in 1984. After he left, your old friend Carol Magar helped you negotiate the pass to the American citizenship. Eighteen years later, she died of cervical cancer, and five years earlier, Benjamin had returned from France. Was it his stance of irony that broke you apart as friends? 
you last spoke to him at a bookstore on Park Avenue and 57th Street. There, on the occasion of promoting his book Maurice Ravel, his life, you introduced him to your husband David. Benjamin excused himself and left abruptly to meet his agent. Later that year, Benjamin moved to Thailand. He became a biographer and translator of well-known 20th-century figures in the arts. Only thanks to the World Wide Web can you see his image, and his prose continues to provide you with his particular métier. He remains your provocateur. Chapter 36 In 1987 you were diagnosed with AIDS. Before the diagnosis you came to know an Episcopal clergyman and a TV soaps actor. Both fought for your attention. For years one disapproved of the other. The actor was ironic and the clergyman was a libertine. The clergyman died of a heart attack in 2008. The actor is in his late 80s. His husband derided you. Chapter 37 During the years of AIDS's hysteria, your friends Philip Jung and Tom Bunny were not scared of death. You comforted them when they lay quietly on your lap. Chapter 38 Nearly blind, Lida saw herself as a patron of Latino culture in the United States. She enjoyed curating art shows in midtown Manhattan. A provincial teacher, turned diplomat, enforced the idea in her they had the opportunity to open up the American art establishment. Then a pseudo-progressive revolution strengthened them as potential populists. Chapter 39 You listen to grand stories. Their aspirations, akin to religious fervor, never materialized. They seemed like grafters unable to give up their desires to dominate. Chapter 40 Painting kept you sane, said a friend, who had come to your loft. Your paintings were developing an abstract vocabulary. You painted at night and worked as a commercial designer during the day. When your health failed you renounced everything and chose refuge with your family in South America. Chapter 41 One learns to live with fear. Chapter 42 You became a seesaw in your native land. You ran into repugnance both from the medical establishment as well as from family. Chapter 43 In 1994 the Venezuelan medical institutions were collapsing. A few doctors and several thousand businesses asked you to write a mission statement for Fundation Medigardia. It had been registered as a program for people with terminal diseases. The proposal went to the Venezuelan Commissions of Health, Education, and Culture, and to the United Nations. It failed. The Venezuelan Ministry of the Family tried to turn the program into activities for the feeble-minded. Nothing happened. Chapter 44 In November 1995, you flew from Caracas to Los Angeles. You had been nominated for an Emmy for your work on In Search of Dr. Seuss. The morning after you awoke to a fever of 108 degrees, from a hospital bed, you hallucinated making love to an angel descending upon you. To your nurse, you explained that death was an illusion. In your mind you spoke of Egyptian gods and goddesses, of Germans meandering inside your room, of Zapata fighting for Mexico's freedom, and even of an intergalactic journey on a spaceship hovering over the hospital. A nurse asked you to open your eyes. Your body had begun to slow down, your eyesight had become magnified. Pulling the intravenous line out of your arm, you wanted to flee. You could not walk but somehow, you danced to music played by the nurse's radio. You felt yourself in a different time. You saw your home in Venezuela as you crawled on its floor. The grouts were like rivers. Then you opened your eyes to an ocean. Your heart pulsated. You climbed to your home's roof and stared at the cloudless sky. Fractals of light pulsated like thousands of rainbows. Now you were awake, your ankles were weak. You stood up. You turned to the doctor and said, What does dignity mean to you? Are you a human being? Chapter 45 Nine months later, you were in your mother's house. Your father came every week to visit. As you become stronger, he says you should return to the U.S. Chapter 46 
In November 1996, you fly from Caracas to New York. Your nine months stay in Venezuela violated your residence's status. I believe I was dying and unable to return you answered. Sir, you may proceed, the agent said. Chapter 47 Some weeks later, your father falls at home and suffers a concoction. After surgery, he dies in the hospital. Your stepmother had locked him away as if he were a wild beast. In grief you paint again. With no more success than before, rejections from galleries continued to abound. With your mother you traveled to Europe. She talks incessantly and then nine years later she loses her voice to Alzheimer's. Without parents, you had no bridge to your brothers and sisters. Throughout the years of Chavez and Maduro you have helped the family. Chapter 48 In 2012, you stopped painting at your art studio in Jersey City, only to return to art through digital technologies, by chance you have regained your confidence. Chapter 49 In 1997 you met Nelson. Together you hiked the Amazonian rainforest all the way to Angel Falls. You swam together in Lost Rooks. With you he showed himself vulnerable. Was his suicide the venting of his dejection over his brother's death? Chapter 50 In August of 1999, you confess to a Nicaraguan priest in the Vatican. He tells you to measure your responsibilities. You sobbed inconsolably over Nelson's death. The priest's response, this is not the place. From the Vatican you return to the hotel, where you locked yourself up. Upon returning to the United States you seek therapy. There you discussed a relationship with a married English teacher with children, who tells you, you have killed me as well. Then you fell into a relationship with an alcoholic. It too was unsuccessful. Chapter 51 Therapy became a crutch and strangled freedom. Leaving it, the therapist was disappointed. He had become accustomed to directing your thinking and actions. It was his empowerment and, much to his chagrin, you left him. Chapter 52 when you and David meet, he fills a void in you and you in him. Respite in an imperfect world is found. Chapter 53 He awoke to an itching jaw with stubble. You rubbed your cheeks carelessly against his face and musky scent. His eyes had the expression of a loving child. Chapter 54 His glowing eyes evince a timid sense of wonder. Chapter 55 Together you have traveled the world, the Atlantic, the Pacific, the South China Sea, the Mediterranean, and the North Sea. Chapter 56. On December 27, 2000, police reported that a 39-year-old man apparently jumped to his death from a Manhattan apartment building on Sunday morning. The suspected suicide leap occurred in Hell's Kitchen, a short distance away from your home. He was your primary doctor, who had plummeted from the sixth floor. The week before, you had explained to him that the medication he last prescribed had caused you to be sleep-deprived for eight consecutive days. Chapter 57. A few friends from my childhood remain in touch today. At 94, Herda is my oldest friend. I have known her for 46 years. She was my mentor and platonic friend since college. She lost her memories to Alzheimer's. From Yale Graduate School, there is Angelina Melchiori, who is now an Italian news director at Rai TV in Rome, Ariel Fernandez, who is an American-Argentinian physical chemist and pharmaceutical researcher, and Mater Dravasa, who is a French Basque with PhD in linguistics living in Paris. All three have been my friends for the past 40 years. As with all of my friends, we have traversed life's forest through thicket and thin. Then there is my good friend Billy Bussell Thompson, who has a PhD in linguistics, Professor Emeritus, Hofstra University. I believe Billy has suffered what job did not. I have known Billy for 34 years since 1987. My true education began when I met him. Over the years, we have co-authored in many occasions, and nearly in every one of my WordPress blogs, 
observations on the nature of perception, aesthetics, visual arts, and plasticity, and a free human mind. When I wrote other short stories in Spanish, Italian, or French, Billy was there to guide me ordering my thoughts into the Romance languages. Book of Changes evolved from a collage of reflections coming from memoirs, my interest and aversion to social sciences, my love of history, an interest in meter, its rise and fall in American poetry, suicide prevention, and self-healing. Billy brings to my prose a desire to be precise and to unburden those nagging, vague, and scattered illusions of mine, and overcoming my limitations of fluency as a bilingual writer. Most importantly, there is my husband of over 20 years, David Lowenberger, who has exerted perhaps the most significant influence over who I am. His friends and relatives have also been major contributors. Much to my good fortune, his mother, my mother-in-law, Eva, gifted me 20 years of memorable friendship. Dignified in every respect, she was an inspiration as a mother and a friend. She recently died nearly five weeks before turning 98. I dedicate these short stories in her memory. April 12, 2021